and we will be on page 13 in our notebooks, page 13, for our series, the title of which is Where is God When It Hurts? Let me uh, remind you of some things that are coming up. This coming Tuesday in this room is an informational meeting for the Bible Study Fellowship for Men's Weekly Bible Study. Every Tuesday, starting September 9th, uh, there will be a Bible study in, in this building uh, for men from uh, 6.55 to 8.30, I think it is. And, uh, but in order for you to participate in that weekly study, which will be a study of the life of Moses this year, uh, you have to come to the informational meeting. If you were not at the one back in June and you're interested at all in perhaps attending the weekly study, then the folks who put that study on, and we're letting them use our building, Bible Study Fellowship, require that you come to an uh, a informational meeting. So that's this Tuesday at 7 o'clock in this room, guys. And uh, you come to that meeting. It doesn't obligate you to attend the study. If what you hear doesn't interest you, that's okay. But if you think you might want to attend the study, you do have to come to the informational meeting. So that's uh, this, coming, this coming Tuesday. And then uh, a few things coming up for those who are new to our church. September 6th, Saturday morning, 10 a.m. to noon at our house, is our next Newcomer's Brunch. Uh, We have a brunch periodically throughout the year at our house for those who are new to the church as an opportunity for us to get to know you and you get to know us. There's no uh, program for that. I don't go through any material. We don't do anything but have brunch and uh, enjoy each other's company. However, in that setting, if you have any questions about our church and where we've come from and why we do things the way we do or doctrinal question, anything, uh, I'll do my best to answer that question for you. But uh, we would love to meet you and get to know you in that setting, but we need to know how many people are planning to attend for food purposes. Uh, So if you would like to attend, uh, you've never been to one of our brunches, that's how you define yourself as a newcomer. Even if you've been here a year and you've never been to a brunch, consider yourself a newcomer. And let the folks at the information center know, and they'll put your name down. They'll give you an invitation that has our phone number, our address, a map to our house, uh, and we'll look forward to seeing you on Saturday the 6th at at 10 a.m. That following day, September 7th, and for the four Sundays in September, the 7th, 14th, 21st, and 28th, each of those during this hour, the Discovering God hour, we will have two things going on. One is our newcomer's orientation. That's an orientation to all things CBC, for those who are new to CBC. It's designed to give you information to help you make a decision as to whether or not this is where God would have you to join in membership and to grow and and serve. It doesn't obligate you to anything. It's just informational for you. And if you're new, you're looking for a church, you've been coming around here, we offer that class for you for that purpose. So plan on attending. You don't have to sign up, but just mark that, September 7, and then the four Sundays of September during this hour, the 11 o'clock hour. Simultaneous with that, we have our new members class. That will be those four Sundays as well. And that is for those of you that have joined our church since the last new members class. So if you've never been in the new members class, then you need to to take that. Now, we've got a list of people that we think have never taken it, and we've sent you or are going to send you an email inviting you to that new members class. But if you've never taken it and you don't get an email, you need to take it if you're a member of our church. So plan on that, 11 o'clock hour, uh, September 7, 14, 21, and 28. And then uh, just prior to that, on uh, Labor Day, 
uh, one week from tomorrow, September 1st, is Labor Day this year. We have our annual Labor Day picnic. That will be at noon. It'll be at Lake Erie Metro Park. We have a pavilion that is, uh, that is reserved for us. And uh, we tell you in our program what we ask you to bring for that. The church provides the main dish. We ask you to bring a side dish, a dessert, and a, and a beverage for it. And we'll start eating at noon. It's $7 to get into the Metro Park for your vehicle. Last item is this clipboard and this sign-up sheet. This is for the blood drive that the Red Cross is going to be doing here on uh, Thursday, September the 4th. And they have slots every 15 minutes uh, for folks to reserve a place to come and, and give blood, a time to reserve and give blood. Uh, it'll start at 1.30, and then the last one will be at 7.15, so it all ends at 7.30 that day, 1.30 to 7.30. But we need to register folks, and that's only, uh, what is that, a week from or two weeks, a week from? It is a week from. It's a week from Thursday. So we've only got two Sundays for you to uh, see this and sign up for it. Now, a few folks have already signed up, and but they signed up in a, oh, all right, their names are already on here. So we've got a handful of folks that have signed up. But we've got a lot of slots that are blank here. Uh, the last few weeks we've been announcing it and saying, go sign up at the Information Center. I have found that unless you actually stick it under people's nose, they leave and they forget about it. So this is going to be stuck under your nose while I am teaching today. So what we're going to do is pass this around starting over here. And if you have to get up and then, thank you for getting up, Carolyn. I appreciate that. And just pass it around. And then when you're done there, pass it over here. And when you're done there, and get it down here. Now... I need to find that thing because what happens is we've had these sign-up sheets go around. Lots of people have signed up, and then the thing got lost. We never found it again. Somebody stuck it in their Bible, went home with it. It's somebody who doesn't read their Bible because they still haven't discovered that they have this sign-up sheet <laughs> in their Bible. So I need to designate someone to remind me at the end of this time, at noon today, Brown, find out who has the sheet. Where did the sheet wind up? Dana, Engel, I'm, I'm designating you uh, to, to remind me at noon when we're done here, say, don't leave until you get the sheet, okay? Uh, and then I can ask everybody whether everybody saw me designate Dana to be the guy who reminds me. So if we forget, who are we going to blame? Let's all say together, Dana. We're going to blame Dana, all right? <laughs> all right, thanks very much. Page 13 in your notes. And our series is, Where is God When It Hurts? And we are in the second section of our series, as you see at the top, called The Purposes of Suffering. And we have looked at the inward direction of suffering and the forward direction of suffering. Now we're looking at the outward direction of suffering. And the idea with that title is this, that in suffering, God uses us outside of ourselves in the lives of other people. So God has a number of purposes that he accomplishes in allowing suffering into our lives. And one category of those purposes is the outward direction. Him using us outside of ourselves in the lives of other people when he allows, allows suffering. Now that suffering can be of any sort. We've seen from James chapter 1 and verse 2, My brothers, consider it pure joy whenever you fall into trials of various kinds. And notice that phrase, of various kinds. And I noted a few weeks ago with regard to that passage that various kinds of trials means that they come in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes they are a situation, a circumstance. Sometimes they have a name attached to them. Your trial is a person. Your trial is a boss. 
So relationships and circumstances, an illness, financial problems, trying to find a job, uh, those are circumstances that are trials, but then there are people that are trials. Now please, dear friends, then, consider the fact that what we're talking about here applies to every one of us. Because every one of us has gone through, is going through, or will go through something that fits into one of those two categories. I've got an adverse situation, or I've got an adverse person or persons, or perhaps I've got both, and maybe more than one in each category. <laughs> now, Bob, is she talking about you when she, when she says that? All right. We'll do it. We do marriage counseling for you, too. It's a little late in the game for you guys, but nonetheless, we'll... Uh... But it can be, right? And these, these trials are of various kinds and are therefore ubiquitous. They're, they're everywhere and they involve everyone. So your situation, your person, fits into this category of suffering. And God seeks to use that person or that situation in a number of ways, one of which is an outward direction. You having influence outside of yourself on others. Top of page 13, you see the example we have under God desiring to build his kingdom is the missionary's loss. And what that is about is a missionary whose wife and child had labored for many years with very few results for their, their ministry. And an accident occurred in which the missionary lost his wife and, and his child, both at the same time. So here's a man who had been laboring in obscurity and laboring without any visible results for many years, and now on top of that, he's lost his wife and his child. And he was contemplating what the Lord would, would have for him over the next months, and he began to see uh, an uptick, uh, some interest in the, the work that he had planted, the church that he had started, and he didn't know what caused that. And so he asked one of the locals why... Suddenly, after all these years, are a number of you interested in me and in the work that we are doing here? And this local said to him, we have watched you quietly and regularly and with a sense of hope and confidence work through this trial that the Lord has, that, that, you, that you've gone through. And he said this, he said, we don't understand your religion, but we like the way you bury your dead. The way this man was handling that had an outward effect, had an effect on people outside of him. And unbeknownst to him, they were watching very carefully, and now they had an interest in him and his message that they had not had before. Now, we find that same kind of thing in Philippians chapter 1. You're juggling some notes. You don't have to turn to Philippians 1 if you can't juggle your Bible or you, you don't have it. But if you do and you're so inclined, Philippians 1... And on page 13, we say in the summary, the furtherance of the gospel was the, heart, was the heart's passion of Paul's life. Suffering not only provided an opportunity to advance the gospel, but also to advance his soul. Suffering has an outward impact on others. Through hardships, our souls are revived as we watch others come to Christ by seeing the hope and joy in our lives amidst pain. And in Philippians 1, we, we have an example of this. Now, most of you know that in Philippians, the letter that this one mentioned on page 13, Paul wrote to a church in a city called Philippi, and thus the name, Philippians. 
He's writing to a, a group of people, a group of Christians. He had planted a church there in Philippi years earlier, and now he's writing back to them, and he is uh, seeking to encourage them. Now, the circumstances under which he writes the four chapters of this letter are extremely important because he's writing to encourage them when he himself is in difficult circumstances. In fact, his circumstances are that he is under house arrest and he is uh, chained to a chained to a Roman guard. And he is under arrest because of nothing other than preaching the, the gospel. Now, friends, think about that. You're being unjustly treated as Paul was. What is your first thought when you're unjustly treated? Well, it's to kill the person who's unjustly treating you. You say, Pastor, murder's wrong. I'll just maim them. But some manner of ill treatment and response, retaliation to those who are mistreating you. And yet Paul's reaction is quite different. He finds himself in, in prison, and yet he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about other people. He, he pens the letter that is in your New Testament called Philippians while he's in that situation to encourage them. You would think he's the guy who needs the encouragement, but no, he's writing this in order to encourage them. He says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, be, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So at the very beginning of the letter, he's saying, my thoughts while I'm in this situation are, are with you. And I want to encourage you that the work that God has begun in you, God finishes what he, what he starts. Then he starts to tell them, don't worry about me. I'm good. And here's the reason I'm good. Because God is already using this adverse circumstance in the lives of other people. There's an outward purpose that is clearly being served by what God is allowing here. Now, you see that if you look down at verse 12, Philippians 1.12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, I want you to know this. And why does he want them to know this? Because <laughs> he doesn't want them worrying about him. I want you to know I'm good. And I want you to know that the situation I'm in is actually already clearly working out for God's good purpose, namely the advance of the gospel. Now, when he uses this word uh, advance, in some translations that is for the furtherance of, of the gospel. Uh, the NIV 2011 that some of you have for the greater progress of the gospel. They're all a translation of a term, advance, furtherance, greater progress, of a Greek word. Your New Testament was originally written in Greek. And all of those are a translation of a term that is a military term. And it was a military term used of a group of, uh, of uh, military personnel who would go in advance of an army and clear out a pathway for them on their, on their mission. 
And so they would clear away brush and any other obstacles that were in the way of the, of the other soldiers. And uh, that was their job. And that, was, that term described the work that they did. And so in verse 12, when Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to clear away obstacles that otherwise existed. To clear away brush that kept me from being able to get the gospel to particular people. Now, who would those particular people be? Verse 13, as a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So this difficulty has allowed me access, removed obstacles to access that I otherwise would not have to the palace guard. Because I'm in chains, I'm captive, but really, in Paul's mind, I'm not the one who's captive. They're the one who's captive. They can't let me go, which means they have to listen to me. Which means, as a result, all of these people are hearing the gospel. They have come to learn, through me, that the reason that I'm in chains is because of, for Christ. So in this circumstance, I, Paul, am looking at an opportunity that God has opened up, cleared away, for me to give the gospel. So don't worry about me. This is advancing the mission. This is what I'm about now. If you're in a hospital bed, can you do that? Right? You got the housekeeper that comes in. You got the nurse that comes in. You got the doctor that comes in. (laughs) Who's captive here? (laughs) You or them. And you've got all kinds of people that God is bringing you in contact with in contact with. And you think about your circumstances that way. The things that go wrong, instead of immediately thinking, oh me, or why did they do this to me, or why is God doing this to me, ask yourself, who is God bringing into my circle of influence through this that can advance the cause of the gospel? That's what Paul was doing here. Not only was this outward direction being served for unbelievers who were in the palace guard, but then also in verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged and speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So it not only is having effect on the unbelievers who have to listen to Paul give the gospel and explain why he does what he does and why he's devoted to Christ as he is, it's not only that, It's that the brothers, those who already believe in Christ, are more emboldened now because of the example of Paul. Because of his example, as a result, they're encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and and fearlessly. And so, God puts us in circumstances, and one of the things that he does in those circumstances, in terms of his outward direction in his purpose, is to bring us into contact with people who otherwise may not hear the gospel. But God also not only desires to build his kingdom, middle of page 13, he desires a strong and caring church. A strong and caring church. Now what does that have to do with your suffering? Well, it's this. One of the things that God does in the suffering that he allows in our lives is use that as an occasion for you to turn off your cell phone. All right, thank you. Sorry for whoever that was. I don't know who you were. 
You don't need to come to me after and say, I apologize. That happens all the time. People come say, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I didn't know it was on. And I go, I didn't know it was you. (laughs) But now that I do. (laughs) Confession's good for the soul, but don't confess. It's, uh, It's all good. But one of the things that God wants to happen when we go through trial is rather than you do what we are often tempted to do, which is recoil to ourselves, withdraw to ourselves. Isn't that what we normally do? I want to sulk on my own. I want to grieve on my own, whatever the case is. And God says, no, I made you as a social being and I made you for relationship with others. And part of the reason I made you that way is because I made you with limitations. Unlike me, you are not infinite in your abilities, and therefore you need the help and support of others. I made you that way. And in particular, when you go through difficulties, you need the help and support of others. So rather than withdrawing yourself and saying, I'm going through something, and when I get over this, maybe I'll come back to church. The time you need to be in church, friends, is the time that you're going through that difficulty. I mean, and when you're not. But you especially need your brothers and sisters in the Lord when you're going through that. And God has made us for that, and he has certainly made the church for that purpose. And that's why the example here is solitary confinement. The Nazis during World War II experimented with the best ways to punish prisoners of war in order to extract information from them. They tried a number of ways, but they found that the most effective way was solitary confinement. Because we are creatures made by the Creator, but we were made by the Creator with this relational uh, aspect, then one of the worst things that can happen to an individual is for him or her to be isolated from other people. One of the great tragedies of our society is you have a lot of lonely people, particularly elderly people, who spend hours and hours and days and weeks and months alone. We were not made to be alone. God said, God said, it is not good that man be alone. And so they found the most effective way to to punish and then extract information was to place someone in solitary confinement because we were naturally not made for that. Bottom of page 13 in the summary, the Christian life then is not a spectator sport. We actively participate with one another on the field of play. When a fellow player is wounded, it's up to us to to spring into action in whatever way we are able. Pain and suffering often have healthy effects upon the sufferer and others alike. As the body of Christ... When we're aware of others who are hurting, we're to respond to the wound with love, comfort, encouragement, and support. In this way, the benefits found in pain move outward into the lives around the sufferer, validating our need for each other. Now, this means a number of things for us as a church. If, this is, if that's true, if that summary is true, and it is, then it means a few things. Let me give them to you. One is we cannot be a group of people who act as though we don't have problems. We cannot be a people who are so hived off from one another and protect our privacy privacy so jealously that we never share with one another the things that we're struggling with. 
If we are a church where people come together and they all act like they have it together, this will never happen. People will not be encouraged to open up about their issues if others don't open up about their issues. Now, one of the means that we provide for that to happen is our Sunday night home groups. It's one of the reasons that we have what we call community groups. And you meet in six-week blocks on a Sunday evening at a home for the purposes of fellowship, but also discussion of the application of God's Word, and then praying together. And it's in that context that you get to know people in a way that you simply cannot in a gathering like this. We offer that environment in part for you to establish those kinds of relationships so that you have a group of people in whom you can confide and on whom you can depend. If the church acts like, and the folks in the church act like we don't have any problems, we will never be able to help each other with our problems. Also, we need to understand that the church was never intended to be a country club for the healthy, but a hospital for the sick. And too many of our churches are, in fact, viewed as country clubs for those who are healthy. Hey, did that, did that thing make it all the way over here? Did the Red Cross sign up, get over here? Have you guys seen it? No? So it needs to come over here. And, and poor Gene has to get, poor Gene, thanks Gene for doing that. I have no, how would I know? <laughs> I don't know. Did you guys get, hey, I like, this guy, you know what, this is, you know what's scary about this, this guy takes up the offering. And so he might stand there and say, did you get it? Give some more, right? I like it. When Gene takes up the offering, we always get more money when, when Gene does that. So did you guys get, still passing around, they'll have to go across the uh, middle aisle here soon. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Gene. I thought you were going to give it to me, and I, I didn't get it. So the church cannot be viewed as a country club for the healthy, but rather it is a hospital for, for the sick. If we do that, then we can effectively borrow something from, and some of you may be surprised when I say this, but we can actually borrow something effectively from groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. One of the slogans that AA uses is this, that you can reach out without reaching down. Reach out to other people without reaching down. That is, you cultivate an environment in which the ground is level. Hey, we're all in this together. Hey, we're all sinners struggling with our own sin and the effects of sin that others commit upon us and just living with the effects of fallenness in, in our world. And if we communicate that kind of mentality, then it will tend to encourage folks to, to come forward with their, their difficulties. Now, let me use this as an opportunity to present to you a vision that I've shared with our church a number of times over the years. And now, in God's good providence, we're getting increasingly closer to be able to see it as a reality. And that is, uh, I have shared with many of you over the years a, a vision for our church to provide what I call a, a road to maturity. A road to maturity for every person that God brings to us. So envision uh, a road, and each of us are traveling that road, and we're traveling that road toward 
what I'm calling maturity, really toward Christ-likeness, becoming like Jesus. But as we travel that road, a number of things are true about our vehicles, each of us as vehicles on that road. One, we travel at different speeds. I mean, some people pick up things really quick. Other people, it takes a bit longer. Some of that is because people are in different circumstances, and therefore some are able to avail themselves more of things that are offered for their growth, and therefore they're able to advance sooner and quicker. So we're on the road. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are on the road of becoming like Jesus, but we're, we're going at different speeds. The other feature of that, that road, like I-75 or any other highway, is, is this, that it has uh, exits along the way. And as you go along on the road, uh, you may become tired, weary, and you need to get off on, on an exit. And we sometimes call those rest areas, right, along the highway? Well, what we call it in our visual of this uh, road to maturity is not a rest area, but a, a restoration area. And the idea is you're going along, but circumstances have overcome you. And you've become weary and tired and weakened. And you need to pull off, as it were. But notice when you pull off, you're still moving in the direction. You're just slowing down. You're coming off for a, a rest. And then there are to be people there to help you in that rest area, that restoration area. Now, what if you had a church of people who were ready to help just about anything that could happen to someone on the road to maturity? And as they are beat up by life in a fallen world, maybe it's something they've done to themselves, maybe it's something that's been done to them, but they have this thing and they need this, this restoration. Divorce. A loss of, of a loved one. A financial loss because of the loss of a, a job. These are all crises things that occur because of life in a fallen world. And what we want to develop here is what we call crisis ministry then to folks who have to pull off for a period of time in that restoration area and be able to minister to them. Now, I've been talking about this for years, but we needed, frankly, a place to carry this out. Now God has given us that. We've needed personnel to carry it out. Since I've been talking about it for a long time, some of you have been talking with me for a long time about what you would like to do with it. And I'm thrilled that we are inching closer to, as I say, making that a reality. So on October 4th, just about six weeks from now, on October 4th, um, that's a Saturday, there's a half-day seminar in Toledo. And that half-day seminar is put on by a group called Stephen Ministry. Stephen Ministry is a ministry out of St. Louis that I've been familiar with for a number of years. And when we got to this point... I want to implement the uh, tools that they have available for crisis ministry. Grief care, divorce care, financial loss, all of that. I've had some of you tell me I want to be involved in that. And send an email to a few of you who have told me that about this seminar. Some of you are going to be going to that. I'm telling you all that, one, so that you can pray about that and this overall vision that I'll share some more of in a moment. But also as an invitation to any of you who believe that God might be calling you to help those who are in that kind of crisis, crisis need. And if you are, I would love for you to be part of a group 
that goes on Saturday, October 4th to Toledo for the uh, half-day seminar to hear about that. If you want to be a part of that, see me, and then we'll, we'll go from there, okay? Road to maturity, going at different speeds, restoration areas because crises happen, things we inflict on ourselves, things that are done to us. We want to be equipped and ready to help people when that happens. But here's the other thing about that road to maturity. There are things, points along the road that you know you're going to encounter before you get there. So you ought to prepare for those. So this is, this is wisdom that I'll compare to a AAA triptych. You guys know, do, do they still do markers? And now we got the internet and stuff, but they used to. At AAA, you say, I'm going on a trip from Detroit to South Carolina. And then they would put together and highlight, you know, this is the way you should go. And you should avoid the road construction over here, and, right? Well, here's the thing that's always gotten me about our churches. We watch people go through the same stuff at the same points in life. And we always act like we're surprised. I mean, everybody's traveling this road. There are certain places along the way, mile markers along the way of the road to maturity that everybody goes through. And they are going to present challenges for you. I'm not talking about now crises. I'm talking about transitions just in going through the normal course of life. So you take a, you take a young couple who has a child, their first child. If that couple does not negotiate having that first child well, that can cause difficulties for them down the road, can it not? I mean, many a young couple, their marriage began to, began to fray after they had their, their first child. Maybe the child was colicky, the child had difficulties, maybe physical difficulties, whatever it was, and they weren't prepared. Now, why in heaven's name are they not prepared, given that how many of us here have already gone through this? We can share the collective wisdom that we have learned sometimes through the mistakes we've made for that couple to be ready for that thing that we know is, is coming, right? Or, as, as you go on in life, and we know that there are going to be people who are going to encounter midlife decisions. And some of those are going to develop into what we call midlife crisis. Can't we prepare ahead of time because we know that's going to happen? And prepare people for that? What about empty nest? You get a couple who's invested their lives into their, their children. Their children are grown they're starting to leave, and it, you'd be amazed at how many couples break up after the kids leave the house. Why? Because they haven't been cultivating their relationship while they were there. We know this, we know this happens. We can prepare you for it before it happens, right? Retirement. I haven't read the updated statistics in a while, but several years ago I read a statistic that said the average person dies five years after they retire. So you've lived your whole life for retirement, and then you get five years of it on average. So here's my advice. Don't live your whole life for retirement, okay, the way most people think of retirement. But we know that that can cause difficulties for people. All right, I'm in retirement. I thought this was going to be great. It was great for the first six months. Now what do I do with myself? I've got a suggestion. <laughs> Serve Jesus. 
Give the time that you have to the Lord Jesus and his mission. We can prepare you for that. We've got a list of a number of these, what I call transition ministries, that people just go through in life. That we can, if we're wise, prepare people for on the road to maturity. But in order for that to be effective, we have got to be the kind of church that I've mentioned, a kind of church where people say, yeah, I'm vulnerable. Yes, I'm struggling with this. Yes, I have this crisis going on. Yes, I know that that potential, that transition is coming up for me, and I may not negotiate that transition well. I need to be prepared for that. We've got to be the kind of people who are, be, are willing to say, I have those kinds of weaknesses and struggles. Now, so we can offer that, pray about that. That's our vision for trying to help people on the road to maturity. But what else can a church do as God desires a strong and caring church? Well, of course, we can pray for one another. And let, let me read for you what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says about the purpose for this prayer for one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse 10. In fact, I'll go back to verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, our hearts, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us, as you help us by, now notice this, help us by your prayers. And then notice the reason for these prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Now I know the language is a little tortured there, so let me explain what Paul's saying there. We've been in difficulty, and one of the means that God has used in order to sustain us has been your prayers. But he gives this explanation in verse 11 as to why we want many people praying. Because then many thanks will be given. Hear this. Many prayers means many thanks. The reason that we need many prayers, hear this. How many times have you said, holy cow, I need as many prayers as I can get? Hey, do you want me to pray for you for that? Holy, are you kidding? I need all the prayer I can get. And get as many people as you can, far flung all over the place. Put it on Facebook, get a chain letter going. Everybody pray for Ken. Because I need as many prayers as I can get. And the idea that we have in our mind is, I need many prayers to bombard the throne room of heaven. So God will go, there is something serious going on down there. Holy cow. I ought to intervene. A bunch of people are praying. You know how many people it takes for God to hear? One. The many prayers are not so that we'll just bombard God and God will finally get it. The many prayers are so that when God answers that prayer, many people will give thanks to God. That's why we do that. 
And that's why we make our prayer requests known. And that's why we pray for one another. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. If you care to jot down Hebrews chapter 10, don't have time to turn there. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. But Hebrews 10, 25 is this passage that we pastors like to use to say, you need to be in church, you need to be faithful to church, because it says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Well, that's true. You need to be in church, you need to be faithful to be in church. But the context of that passage is actually verse 24 and 25 which tells us to encourage one another. One of the reasons that we meet together is so that we can be together, so that we can know each other, and so that we can encourage each other. So the outward direction of suffering includes God building his kingdom, building a strong and caring church, and then on page 14, quickly, God ministering through us. And the example there is Tom and Maria Whiteman. And the story is this, that they were married, they had met at Bible college. He got a position at a church as a youth pastor. And after they were about six years into their marriage, uh, she approached him saying she had, was not happy in their marriage, that she wanted to leave, and it turned out for six months she had been in a relationship with someone else. She left him, and he was stunned. I met her at Bible college. If I do the right things, things should turn out the, the right way. And he was so disappointed because he had that view of God that he dropped out of church himself for a period of time. But over time, through the encouragement of uh, friends, he decided to venture back to church. Uh, he found a, 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 caring, a caring church and then uh, stumbled upon 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 that we have listed there for you. Now, I quoted that for you last week at the end of our time together. Thanks be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we may comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And what happened to Tom was he got involved in a divorce care ministry. And through that divorce care ministry, he was able to share his experience with others and made uh, an entire ministry out of that. So that is God using the experience that we have had in order to minister to others who are going through similar kinds of things. Now, you may not have had that kind of dramatic thing go on in, in your life. How can you fulfill this? Well, this word that's translated comfort in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 uh, is the word that's often translated encourage. The Greek word is paraklesis. And paraklete is one who comes alongside. It pictures somebody coming alongside and sort of putting your arm around someone and simply being there with someone. And so my encouragement to you is this, dear friends. Even if you haven't gone through the thing that someone else has gone through, don't then feel like you have to be the counselor with the right answers. A lot of times the best thing that we can do for someone is to simply be there. Be beside that person, put your arm around that person, hear that person and what they're going through, and then be willing to pray with that person and offer yourself for anything that you can do. And every one of us can do that in the relationships that God gives us in his church. All right, we've got to quit. We are, yikes, five minutes over. So where is the blood drive? Sign up. All right, and everybody see the blood drive sign up? Terrific. So Kate, uh, Kylie, I'll get it from you when we're done here. Okay, thank you. All right, let's bow together. We'll be done.
Father, thank you for the blessings of this morning, the opportunity to be with your people, the opportunity to sing praise to you, the opportunity to hear from your word, the opportunity to laugh together and to fellowship together and to bond together. And Lord, we do all of these things because we are on this road to maturity. You made us in order to be like you. Our sin has made us unlike you. And now you are remaking us into your image. And Lord, we want then to make progress in becoming like Jesus. And so as we travel this road to Christ-likeness, help us to be people who humble ourselves such that we will reach out when we are struggling, that we will admit uh, our own difficulties, and help us to be people who care about those who struggle as fellow travelers and to use the gifts and abilities and time that you have given us in order to be a paraclesis, an encouragement, a comfort to others. Lord, I pray that you would help our church to fulfill this vision that you have given to us, to be this kind of body of Christ. And as a result, may we be able to look back, if you so tarry and you allow us these years, look back a generation from now and see the trophies of your grace that you have created, the many testimonies of those who have experienced all sorts of struggling, difficulty, strife in relationships and in circumstances, but by your grace have advanced in Christ's likeness. And, and not as in spite of them, but often because of them. Because you chose to use those things as the means to advance us in becoming like Jesus. And Lord, help us to pursue this with all that we have. And we give it to you, entrust it to you, because we know that unless you build the house, we labor in vain. Lord, go with us this week as we seek to serve you and seek to implement what we have learned from your word. Grant us safety, we ask you, and bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.